0: and uh, has really put and reminded me what's
1: truly important.
2: Damian Luller.
1: That was for Seattle.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just to name a few.
1: Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. It's powered by Molka Sports. You can visit them at Molka, M-A-L-K-A, sports.com. I want to remind you to subscribe to and rate the Sports Business Radio podcast. If you enjoy listening to this podcast now in our 17th year, please take a few minutes to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and even write a review if you have some time. We appreciate it. We've got a great guest on this week's show. I love when we have guests on who obviously touch the sports world, but also... Just make us smarter, people. And Arnie Duncan, the former U.S. Secretary of Education under President Obama, he's now the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. He's the managing partner with the Emerson Collective. He's going to join me for a wide-ranging conversation. And we touch on a lot of different things. Number one, we touch on the Knight Commission's recommendations to the NCAA on how to reform We've talked about that a lot on this show over the years. NCAA needs to change with the times and what does the Knight Commission recommend? Also, I think the most interesting part of our conversation is getting Duncan's thoughts on the state of education currently in the United States and how the pandemic has changed the way we learn and teach, even how universities may view this past year when considering admission for students. Duncan played basketball at Harvard. You might have seen him in the NBA All-Star Celebrity Games. He got the MVP one year, scored 20 points, and he's even got some stories for us on the pickup games at the White House with President Obama. If you've always wanted a scouting report on President Obama on the basketball court, Arnie Duncan's got that for you today. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Gregs. Griggs, how are
2: you? I'm doing great. And like you said, there's there's smart people and then there's smart people. <laughs> and Arnie is one of those guys that's just like, I mean, anybody that can serve for a president has got something going on, playing basketball at Harvard. He's just got so many avenues and stories, so many good stories. So he's, uh, he's a great interview. So nice job on that one. He's fun to listen to.
1: Yeah, I think everyone's going to enjoy this conversation today. All right. One big headline. Anytime it's the biggest or the best or anything like that, it, it's newsworthy. Will Dak Prescott and the Cowboys finally have a deal griggs 164 million dollars potentially for the deal between dak and the cowboys the deal includes 66 million dollars to sign and then 75 million dollars in year one that's the most a player has ever been paid in nfl history 75 million dollars so if you look at the highest paid quarterbacks in nfl history now here's how they stack up patrick mahomes $45 million a year. Dak Prescott, $40 million a year, even though he's going to get $75 million in year one. Deshaun Watson makes $39 million a year, and Russell Wilson makes $35 million a year. Griggs, some big money for Dak Prescott, and this took forever. It was like two years of them going back and forth and back and forth, and finally, they make a deal. And the great thing for Prescott, too, is that when this deal is up, he's still only 31 years old. So he could be in line for another big payday.
2: I agree. He's young. And and it's crazy. Like you said, how long this took. I saw the news yesterday. I'm like, wow, they finally, they're still dealing with this. They finally got the signature. So, and think about that sitting down to sign 66 million, just to sign a document. Not bad. Well, and he was a fourth round pick. Remember like this was not a number one pick. This
1: is not, you know, a first round pick. This is a fourth round pick who really has made himself into one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL. But the other thing I was thinking is, you know, if you're Lamar Jackson, if you're Josh Allen, if you're one of these other quarterbacks, you're like, whoa, if Dak got that, what am I going to get? So, you know, the the price keeps going up and up and up, and you've got this new uh, TV deal money and streaming money that's going to come in in the next year or so when the NFL makes new deals with its media partners, and the money's going to get even more. Griggs, we're going to see the day where a quarterback averages 50 or $60 million a year. That's crazy.
2: It is just baffling. And like you said, I mean, even Russell, there's been rumors of uh, Wilson kind of talking and shopping, you know, and hit $31 million. He's like, oh, hey, I could make another $10 million a year, $20 million a year. So, I mean, and you're going to get fans back hopefully next season. That's going to bring more revenue. So NFL, once again, is king and continues to grow. And these big contracts are going to just keep getting bigger.
1: All right. I want to remind you to step into the Sports Business Radio Vault. We've got, like I said, 17 years worth of conversations. Griggs, I can't believe coming up soon, uh, in another month or so, we will be celebrating 17 years of Sports Business Radio. You've been along for most of the ride. The time flies.
2: It's crazy. I mean, we talk about being the OGs of podcasts because we were doing it way before podcast was even a term. But uh, 17 years is just amazing. And I was looking through the vault the other day. I mean, Holy cow, we've got gems in there of just star after star after star, big name after big name. It's a great, great show. It's been fun. And I'll tease next week's
1: podcast, Joanne Scott, our friend from the NCAA. She's the managing director of the NCAA Men's Basketball Championships. They're going to look different this year because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, They're all going to be in Indiana. Every game in Indiana. There's no West region, East region, South, North. It's all in Indiana she's going to join us and take us behind the scenes into the planning of March Madness for 2021. So that's a conversation that you're going to want to stay tuned for.
2: Yeah, she's always great. And like you said, totally different again this year. Last year, we didn't have it. So we're coming off of a year off, basically. So um, going to be interesting to talk to her. And like you said, all in one location uh, changes the whole dynamic and the look of it. So that'll be a fun interview.
1: All right. Before we get to the Arty Duncan interview, uh, I'm not going to go too into this, but I am asking our audience for thoughts and prayers. I haven't done that in 17 years, but I've got something very, very big coming up this week personally. So just asking for good vibes from our listeners and our followers on social media. Uh, definitely need that going into uh, later this week.
2: Definitely. And uh, yeah, nothing, nothing more needs to be said, but uh, I know I'm praying and thinking for you. And uh, let's get the listeners behind you and uh, get through this for sure. Thanks, Gregs.
1: All right, Arne Duncan, the former U.S. Secretary of Education under President Obama, the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, he's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Sports Business Radio host Brian Berger here. The wait is finally over. Sports Business Radio merchandise has finally arrived. We're working with our friends at The Parish Project, to provide you with the opportunity to buy really quality sports business radio merchandise. We've started with long-sleeve t-shirts and short-sleeve t-shirts. They come in five different colors each, a variety of sizes. I love my shirts. And soon, we're going to have hoodies to offer as well, hooded sweatshirts. I know a lot of you are wearing hooded sweatshirts while you're working from home these days, but whether you're working out, just lounging around the house, or doing whatever you're doing, you can rock sports business radio merchandise. I think you're going to love it. Go to parishproject.com. That's P A R I S H project.com. Parishproject.com. And you can order your sports business radio merchandise today. We appreciate your support and uh, send us your best picture. Tweet it to us at SB Radio, or also you can get us on Instagram at sports business radio we look forward to seeing you rocking that sports business radio merchandise my guest is arnie duncan he is the managing partner of emerson collective he's the former u.s secretary of education under president barack obama he's also the co-chair of the knight commission on intercollegiate athletics You can watch the four-part webinar series on transforming the NCAA Division I model. Go to knightcommission.org. You can follow Arnie on Twitter, at Arnie Duncan. Arnie, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who are not familiar with the role of the Knight Commission, can you explain that to them?
0: Well, the Knight Commission is an independent entity. It really seeks to try and, you know, uh, work with the NCA, challenge the NCA depending on the issue, to really make sure that the health and safety and well-being and best interests of, of student athletes is at heart. And I got to know the work of the Knight Commission pretty well when I was uh, Secretary of Education uh, in DC, and they had been pressing for about a decade to have the NCA raise the graduation requirement. To, uh, for student athletes for the university to be able to participate in March Madness, um, that seemed like a pretty obvious thing for <laughs> to, to happen to me. Uh, the NCAA, unfortunately, you know, sometimes moves at a glacial pace, and it hadn't, hadn't done anything much on its So I, I went and gave a pretty forceful speech to the <laughs> to the NCAA leadership, and I, I can't say it was it was wonderfully well received. But really, just talked about not just the, the educational, but the moral imperative to make sure that. Student athletes aren't just you know generating revenue for, for their universities, but are graduating and taking meaningful classes. And subsequent to that, the NCAA actually did raise graduation requirements, which I was uh, thrilled to thrilled to see. And so uh, once I left the administration to uh, to join the the Knight Commission, trying to continue to work on these, these these issues that are you know so important to me personally, I was lucky enough to be a student athlete and and uh, just trying to do what we can to to help create a, a climate. It works, again, for, for students, for young people, for student-athletes. And I would say, honestly, that feels like that's getting more and more challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at this from the, the ground up, when the NCAA was established, it was decades ago, and college sports was not a multi billion dollar industry like it is now. And how do you think the NCAA has done with kind of adjusting to the times as the industry has become bigger and bigger and worth more and more money. Well, I hey, think clearly the industry
0: and the economics of this and TV contracts are, are moving much faster. And I just think universities have, you know, not just coaches, not just athletic directors, but college presidents and you know, boards of directors, boards of trustees, they just have a, I think, a sacred obligation to, to do the right thing. And I say all the time that I truly believe college athletics is, you know, one of the best training grounds for, for leaders in the country, you know, maybe may that and the military. And, I, you know, I'm a little biased. So I just think of, you know, how many leaders have, have, you know, come out of, you know, collegiate sports. And I know how lucky I was to have an extraordinary experience. Um, but that's, that's often not the case. And again, for me, I'll give you two sides, where it's personal. My, it's, uh, I grew up on the campus of the University of Chicago, a small you know, Division three school. My dad was on the faculty there, and he was a faculty representative to the NCA, I think, for like twenty or twenty five years. Hmm. And just you know, understanding that that D three model, where a student athlete is always student first, and he was passionate about his sports, and he he loved you know we went. We, I grew up going to those games, you know, from the time I was a little kid, and those, those guys were my heroes. None of them were going to make a nickel in the pros but they were getting a great education. They would go on to be leaders in the community and just sort of being a part of that environment and hearing his conversations at was meetings was really helpful. The flip side of that is I grew up playing here in Chicago and playing with lots of great players, you know, many of whom were, were better than I and went on to play you know, big time college basketball. I was not playing big time college basketball in the Ivy League. And uh, one of them actually helped to win a NCAA championship for his universities. But many of them weren't quite good enough to be in the NBA, left college, no degree to show for for what they did, made a lot of money for their universities, and frankly came back home to Chicago and had pretty tough lives. And that contrast between the opportunities I had and what they didn't have. And I always worry when that ball stops bouncing for you, uh, what do you have? And when you have a college degree, that opens up a world of opportunity for you. You don't have a college degree it's a pretty tough, tough road. So this is, uh, you know, a bit personal for me uh, for, for a long, long time, going back to my, my teenage years, quite frankly.
1: No, that is interesting. And it probably makes you the perfect co-chair for the Knight Commission because of the fact that you have the upbringing that you just described, the fact that you were a student athlete at Harvard and played basketball, what co-captain on the team, you know, it's better than just putting someone like myself on the commission who might have an interesting perspective, but I don't have the background that you have where I was a, a student athlete at a at a you know major university.
0: You know, we have an
1: amazing commission of you know college
0: presidents and former college athletes and you know commissioners the former commissioner of the NFL it's just a really interesting group of folks and it, it's a it's a new it's a new sort of role for me. You're used to being in positions of power where you could just sort of get things done. All we have is our, our moral authority. You don't have any real voting power with the NCA, So you, you work and you, you talk and you try and persuade and push. But I, I do think it's important. I, I just, I'm always very honest. I, I think I, I, re, I got increasingly concerned about a lack of guidance, a lack of moral leadership at the NCA. For me, the two biggest scandals in, of the past you know, whatever, X number of years, was one, the academic scandal at the University of North Carolina. Where those players, for a couple of decades, were taking classes that were not real classes, that were phony classes, and basically you were receiving you know credit and, and, and devaluing a diploma uh, and putting them in a really tough spot. And the racial dynamics of this really bothered me. That it was obviously primarily black basketball players there. And when that came to light, NCA investigated, and at the end of the day, was frankly impotent. Was unable to do anything there. Nothing, nothing changed. There were no sanctions. And the second one was obviously the sort of the shoe scandal and you know what happened with Pitino and Louisville and others, other universities, where the FBI ended you know, up getting involved of, of all things, criminal charges, you know, placed. But again, the NCA was was not was not present. And so those two things have honestly really troubled me and just a, a lack of leadership, a lack of oversight. And sort of losing sight of of what the point of all all this is. And I'm a big believer in, in governance and good governance. I just think the NCA uh, is set up from a governance perspective in a way that doesn't make sense and, and doesn't lead to, to creativity and ingenuity, or
1: frankly, or moral leadership. So if you were going to tear down the NCAA and rebuild it in the way that it should be rebuilt today, that has the teeth to govern and to uh, you know. Come down on universities when they have the scandals that you just described. I mean, I think the the Dr. Larry Nasser scandal at Michigan State is the worst one I've heard of in the last 20 years. Um, how would you build it? What would you, how would you, what would it look like?
0: Well, I think a couple of things now, issues that we're trying to provide again, some some vision on. If one, I think the vast, let me clear the vast majority of colleges, college sports. You know, probably 95, 97%, D1, D2, D three really do things the right way. And in many of those schools, the, the student athlete graduation rates are actually higher than that of the rest of the student body. And that's, right. that's a great thing. I think it's you know, for me, it's a little counterintuitive. I always got my best grades during the season. But I was either in the gym, the library, when the season was done, you had a little bit more time in your hands, you got a little bit more lost, maybe. So um I think that's fantastic. But where you have now the the power five conferences that are that are really almost it's a different beast They're a different revenue structure and money's not going back into student athlete well-being you know call it a division four <laughs> call it something different but basically separating out those four uh you know for, for the the big time sports um i we, you know we think makes sense we are trying to be very clear in our recommendations there and you have you know national conferences now there's no geographic anything about some of these things right. You know, it's, it's 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 you know semi-pro. Again, the only reason you have that stuff is, is TV revenue. That's what's driving. That's what's driving all of this. And to have the the swim teams, the you know the lacrosse teams, the field hockey teams traveling across the country and missing class and just you know, doesn't make any sense. And so we're you know challenging them to really think differently about that. The, the other current issue is you know the issue of, of uh, names, image, and likeness NILs, and You know the the devils in the details. There's a tremendous amount of complexity, but I just think at a time of uh, where people's social media presence, you know, they can they can market that, they can monetize that. We live in an innovation economy. We can like it or not like it, but that's reality. And I just think, you know, you own your name, I own my name. It just fundamentally doesn't make sense to me that somehow the university owns our name or that. If you or I have the ability to generate some revenue off of that, that somehow we're not allowed to do that. So we're really challenging the NCAA to to, to think differently there. I think what I worry most about, Brian, is that because the NCAA has moved slowly, you're seeing Congress get into the act. You're seeing legal suits all over the place. You're seeing state legislatures and 20, 25 states coming up with their own laws. And can you imagine if, you know, 40 or 50 different states come up with different ideas of what's permissible and what's not. Then you don't have a NCA, you don't have a federation, it's gone. And I keep trying to impress upon them that every every leadership position I've had in life, you want to try and control your own fate. You don't always have that opportunity, but when you can control your own fate, I'd rather do that than have someone else legislate that or have someone else sue me on it or someone else, you know, come up with a set of rules. And so that's what's coming. And I don't want to say it's the last opportunity for the NCAA to provide some, some real leadership. But if they don't, uh, change is going to come. It's going to come at the state level. It's going to come at the federal level. It's going to come through the courts. And I just think that's, any of those answers would probably be suboptimal to what the NCA knows they need to do. But because of their own internal politics and structure, they may, frankly, not be able to get there. So it's a very, very interesting, and I would say critical time.
1: Do you think enforcement should be done by an outside third party? I've always said that on this show. I think any time, I don't care what corporation you are, when you're investigating yourself or a member of your organization, I don't think it's the same as if an outside independent third party is investigating you.
0: It's, it's a great question. And there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. It, so whether it's a third party or whether they really have the autonomy and the ability to do their own thing. When I led the Chicago Public Schools, when I worked in the Department of Education, we always had an inspector general. And that was a you know, you know, fairly independent body that could investigate me and investigate my team. And they had full, you know, ability to do that. And that was a, you know, that was a strong. You know, enforcement mechanism that was a strong way to make sure that you you weren't doing you know things you should you shouldn't be doing, and so whether it's a third party outside, as you said, whether it's a, a quasi independent, whether it's something that's internal but really has the strength and the ability to do this and isn't hamstrung, and for me, it's just, it's not just about gotcha. That's that's the thing that I. It's not just about you know catching doing something. It's how do we lead by example. <laughs> um how do we lead with with the moral authority um how do we make sure that that you know you know university presidents and college boards are providing real leadership here you can't quite legislate that if you can't quite enforce that but it it's are you there to to make money for your university and i'm not naive i know every university needs money but when i look at these you know multi multi million dollar contracts not just for head coaches now but starting to be a Assistant coaches and I I joke that my dream job in life is to is be a fire a fired you know power five football coach and those guys I think in the past you know couple months four or five coaches got fired they're being paid you know forty to fifty million dollars not to coach right that's my dream job and uh, I just think you know is that whose best interest is that in (laughs) what student athletes best interest is that in we've lost sight we've lost perspective.
1: So I've always said, especially for the last 10 years, that football and basketball are the revenue generators. They shouldn't be treated the same as lacrosse and tennis and golf. It sounds like in your most recent recommendations, the Knight Commission, you're saying FBS football should break off from everything else and be treated differently because it is a revenue generator, probably the number one revenue generator along with men's college basketball. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the recommendations the Knight Commission made late last year about breaking off FBS football?
0: Yeah, the, the, um, the analogy, I have to use a metaphor, which maybe isn't a good one, is that most the vast majority of college sports sort of looks like a duck and walks like a duck. So it is a duck. It all sort of fits together. Mm-hmm. The football piece looks like a pterodactyl and walks like a pterodactyl. It is a pterodactyl. It's a different species. Right. There's, there's no... There's very little in common and it's a separate revenue structure. Again, you have these you know, crazy absorbing salaries. You don't have money going into student wellness or, you know, into you know, greater diversity amongst coaches or your greater you know, health programs. You're basically paid to win. That, that's what you're, you paid to, you're paid to win games. And uh, then again, the travel and the, the national conferences and, the amount of money coming in through TV revenue is, is staggering. and has exploded over the past five to 10 years. And so I, I, I'm just a little bit of a believer in truth and advertising. And if it is truly different, let it be different. I, I don't even have a moral judgment there. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying don't lump that in with everything else. And I think, frankly, the, the sins that you see there, the challenges you see there taints the, if you, you want to call, you know, college sports the NCA, you want to call that a brand. Um, it taints all of that, and I think you want to preserve the integrity and, and rebuild trust. The public is, tra- is struggling to trust anything. Is you know, struggling to trust government, uh, struggling to, to trust sports, and, you, know, uh, the, you know, the media, and struggling, struggling to, to trust, uh, and you know, the NCA. And all we have in life is our our integrity. And I think one way to rebuild trust would be just to say, OK, these things are different. They can operate with a you know, slightly different set of rules or a very different set of rules and outside of this. But this is what we're going to try and do for the vast majority of college sports. And I think the public would, would understand that and, and appreciate that.
1: I want to ask you about being secretary of education under President Barack Obama. Um, I thought you did a tremendous job. I'm not just saying that because you're on with me right now. I have a high school age daughter. I look at what's happened in the last year with the pandemic and I'm based in Oregon and we're still distance learning here. There's no hybrid learning. There's no in-person learning. And I'm seeing the mental health crisis that's existing with young people who are being kept away from friends and teachers and coaches. And they're basically isolated at home. Arnie, what do we do coming out of this? Because I'm super concerned as a parent that this is having long-term effects on this generation that may be irreversible.
0: It's a great question, and I
1: beyond share that concern. You have a high school daughter.
0: I have a high school son and a a daughter who's in a freshman year in college, and I'll just say a couple things. first. I worry about tens of millions of kids across the country, students who have fallen behind this year. Mm -hmm. Six months, nine months, 12 months. And I keep saying, I want a national tutoring initiative. We need to have a sprint between March and September to help as many kids catch up as we can. Um, Secondly, this has not received enough attention. This worries me as much as anything, if not more. We have two to 3 million children, Brian, who haven't been back to school since last March in right. a year. They have yeah. not been to virtual school. And we can't have a lost generation. And there's no tech solve to this. You have to go knock on doors, you gotta figure out what's going on with kids and their families and, and bring them back in. Um, and then the third piece of this is the one you're talking about, is students, you know, just social and emotional health and well-being. And the truth is no one knows. the the long-term consequences of a year of of being isolated because this hasn't happened in a hundred years. And all I know is that human beings, particularly kids and teens are by nature social beings and depriving them of that chance to spend time with their friends and hang out a little bit and just have normal social emotional development. um, There's a real cost, there's a real cost to be paid. And I'm always, again, just speak from the heart. This, the, the pandemic to me was a natural disaster that morphed into a man-made catastrophe. And the lack of leadership from the, from the previous administration just has had devastated you know, consequences. You know, 500,000 deaths. I don't know about you. I've lost, unfortunately, lots of friends and a couple of friends I've played basketball with forever. And mm. it's just so uh, it's an, unbelievable, an unbelievable thing. I think we're going to come out of this and they're just a set of people that are gone. And that's just... Reality, you got the long-term health effects, and then you got you know every child in the country whose education was you know negatively impacted, and so we have to pay attention to this. We can't blow through it. Uh, We have to listen to kids. We have to meet them where they are. As we go from you know all virtual back to hybrid, back to you know more and more you know in a physical school building, Uh, you know we had lots of kids dealing with trauma before the pandemic. Um, Then you had the pandemic. Then you had, again, unfortunately, millions of families that were living paycheck to paycheck and doing pretty well, and those paychecks disappeared, and their lives were totally upended. So there's like multiple layers of of challenge that our young kids, our, our our young children are dealing with, and it is a tremendous concern, and all I can say is we need to listen, we need to pay attention, we need to support them, we need to be very real, we as adults need to be vulnerable as well, we don't have all the answers, we've had our own struggles. We're all in this together, uh, but it's um, obviously, I hope we never, ever, ever go through a time like this, but it's not like the light switch is going to go on and everything's back to normal. That's not how this is going to work
1: either academically or socially or emotionally. Yeah. I've even seen schools who are doing some hybrid right now. And on the days they come back, there's no classroom stuff. It's, it's 100% socialization because these yeah, kids need is. the socialization And they just want to see different people than, you know, the people that they've had to see for the last year. So, you know, coming back full circle on this, one of the great parts, as you well know, about sports is the socialization. The friends you make, the the lessons you learn. And I think coming out of this, the socialization is going to be every bit as important as what we learn in the classroom. No, you're exactly right.
0: I think we could both argue as important, if not more important. And so the phrase I've been learning is children need to learn, they need to grow, they need to play, and they need to heal. And Mm -hmm. we need to find ways to help them do all of those things. And I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a superintendent in in San Antonio now, you know, very poor, heavily Latino uh, school district. He worked with me here in Chicago. And we talked about the digital divide and that's real. He's like, he said, Arnie, I closed the digital divide. I got 49,000 kids. I gave out 47,000 devices. I gave some kids two devices. Like that was a solvable thing, but not every child, you know, zoom doesn't work for, for many kids and not every child, you know, frankly loves biology or, or algebra. I gotta, you know, I gotta be honest. I went to high school, not because I necessarily loved all my classes. Right. I wanted to play on the basketball team to do that. You have to do well academically. He said, Arnie, what, what my kids are craving are the extracurriculars and they're craving the sports. They're, they're, they're craving the clubs. They're, They're craving that. And that's what they're that's why they're coming back, not because they desperately miss biology necessarily, but they desperately miss. Yes, the sports team or the debate team or robotics or whatever it might be. And I always say we have to have we have to give every child a chance to find their passion, find their their, their interest. And for you and me and some of the others, it, it is sports, but it may be drama. It may be dance. It may be whatever. And those things aren't extra. Those are fundamentally core to kids' identity and their connection to school. And their connection, is your point, to their friends. And that is so desperately important now. And finally, I'll say it's like, we can't just get rolling now in the spring and then, you know, kick kids out of school for the summer. Right. we got to find ways to be very, very, very creative this summer. Keep learning, going, keep growing, the playing, the healing, keep all that going. So, we hit the fall in as best shape as we can be. We can't lose three months after we've lost a
1: year. That doesn't make any sense. This is a question that I have wanted to ask you maybe more than anyone today. You've got student athletes who we've talked about, and then you've got just regular students. If you're in admissions at a university, do you look at this year as a lost year? Do you look at it as the same as every other year before this? Because you know, again, you go back for a kid learning chemistry from distance on a computer, that's really hard. And it's different than if you're learning in person. And I would bet you if a study was done, grades have probably been down a little bit over the last year, just because you don't have that in-person proximity to your teacher and, you know, aids and, and things of that nature. So if you're a college, how do you look at this when you're doing admissions?
0: Yeah, these are all great questions. So, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Grades may or may not be down. They may, be, may have some grade inflation, but the real question is is learning up or down? Right. The truth is, I think for most kids, learning is down. Now, let me be a small percent of kids where Zoom is actually better for them. I've talked to some kids and families, but that's a, a small percentage of students. And the vast majority of kids, I think, are struggling. So, if, obviously, I'm not, but if I was an admissions counselor, I think the truth is that everybody has been dealing with the pandemic now, how they deal with it personally, what their family situation is, what their community situation is, the school situation, all of those things, there's some unique, uh, you know, truly unique aspects to it. But you almost have a, a, a level playing field. And so you take all of that with a grain of salt. And so if, if grades are down a little bit or whatever it might be, and I think if I was looking, if I was a admissions counselor, I'm looking to find out, you know, what did a student learn this year? Um, how did they try and display resilience, or how did they try and help others? And the thing that's so interesting to me, Brian, about this time—I I hate that we go—we went through it. It's you know, obviously a horrific time in our nation's history. But I think about again—you're my children's generation. Uh, I think about them understanding how interconnected we are. Mm-hmm. That if, if we're okay in our house, but our neighbors are not okay, you know, none of us are okay. I think about the importance of science. I think about the importance of public health. I think about the importance of democracy and voting. And so my hope, and this is, I tend to be optimistic by nature, my hope is that this next generation for the next 30 or 40 years can lead our country to a very, very different place. And so if I'm an admissions officer, I think I'm trying to look to see what has this child learned? Um, What challenges have they tried to overcome? What have they done to help others? And that's a little different than just looking at the results of the AP Chemistry exam, but it's probably a much more honest and
1: complete and holistic picture of of who that who that potential uh, student is. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Just a few more minutes. I know you're busy. So, as we discussed earlier, you played basketball at Harvard. Uh, One of the first times I I kind of really took notice of you was in the NBA All Star Celebrity Game. I think you still have the record uh, twenty points in in a single game. You did great in those games. I am sure that you and President Obama had some pretty good basketball games. I know there was a basketball court at the White House. I need your best President Obama basketball pickup game story.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll give a little context. I'll try to of a specific story. What I will say is that it it, it was interesting. I mean, the amount of stress I was under was, for, for me, high. Obviously, he was under a level of stress exponentially greater than I was. And it's a weird thing to say, but I almost think the basketball court was the only place where he could just be a regular human being, where he wasn't the president. And I know how much I needed that release and that camaraderie. And I can only imagine how much that meant to him. That People always say, did you take it easy on him? And you know the game. No, if you take it easy, if you don't play hard, it ruins the game. There's no point. Right. So when you're right. playing with them, you're trying to win, you're playing against them, you're trying to you're trying to kill them. Uh, but we had you know a lot, of, we had some amazing for his birthday. He brought in sort of all the NBA legends, you know, Kobe was there, you know, may rest oh. in peace, and you know, Bill Russell was there, and LeBron was there. It was just you know, sort of a, a crazy time to, to spend with all. So we had a group of guys that I would bring in on, on weekends to play real good players from DC. And, and uh, that was a, it was a ton of fun. It was a ton of fun. Uh, I guess the one tough story was when one of my friends, you may remember this accidentally hit him with an elbow and busted up his lip. <laughs> he had to go get stitches. And I think, I think after that, he played a little bit more golf, and a little less hoops with us. So <laughs> that, that may have been the beginning of the end, but we, we had a lot of fun playing together and it was, um, I guess, speak for myself. I know
1: how much I needed it. And I think how, I think I know how much he needed it. I've seen highlights of him hitting the corner three. What's his go-to move there? Is, is he corner three guy? Is he step back guy? Is he cross no, no, over? No, no, no. He's, he, he's, he's a slasher. He's a
0: slasher. He's a get to the basket guy. So <laughs> he uh, he'll, 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 he'll wants to get to the rim. And he's, we're both lefties. He's a, he, he's a hard left guy.
1: See, and that throws you off a little bit. I mean, I play some basketball too. And, and when you go against the lefty, it's unnatural. So it's a little bit different guarding the, the left-hander.
0: I've always thought it's an advantage. I've always felt really, really lucky to be in that small minority of lefties.
1: <laughs> last question for you, serious question. I know you had COVID last year, and I know I think some members of your family did. How are you feeling?
0: Yeah, no, are so
1: nice to ask. We are beyond lucky.
0: We are great. You know, all three of us at home had it, me, and my wife, and son, and uh, I say all the time, I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I honestly haven't felt that bad and, frankly, that scared, and I don't ever remember. Uh, but you know, we never, and we had to be clear. We had what's called a mild case. You know, never went to the hospital. Never had huge you know breathing challenges or anything like that. And no, we're we're back at it, and I'm you know working out every morning, and, you know, feeling strong and feeling good. And I know every journey is different, and many many journeys end, ended <laughs> much more disastrously, much more catastrophically. So we are beyond lucky. But I, uh like I said, I would not wish it on, on my worst enemy. Was, uh, uh, I'm it, glad it, it, you made it like,
1: through, and I'm glad yeah, you're feeling real, better. Yeah,
0: we're
1: lucky. Real lucky, yeah. Ar- Arnie Duncan, the managing partner of Emerson Collective, former U.S. Secretary of Education under President Barack Obama, also the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. A reminder, go watch the four-part webinar series on transforming the NCAA Division I model. That's available at Knight Commission. And you can follow Arnie on Twitter. Good follow at Arnie Duncan. Arnie, thanks so much. I really appreciate you joining me on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for the opportunity. really enjoyed the conversation. Take care now. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at MolkaSports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A Sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.